Okay, Kitty was very distracting this morning, which is another uh, argument for that really is a, a living cat, huh? Because they certainly are. We're, we're spending a couple of weeks talking about church. What is church? What is church supposed to be? That's a good question, isn't it? I thought that was a good question. It was a good question. We had it last week. We had a big, big question mark on the, on the bulletin and everything. What is church? Oh, there it is. Yes, it's back. What is church? What is church supposed to be? And God has told us. Not only has God showed, does God show us himself, but God has told us what church is supposed to be. In fact, he, he, in, in one place in the Bible that we're turning to for these, it's, it's one verse, three weeks. Now, that's a, that's a few words for a lot of time. But there's a lot packed in here that, that, that we do well to notice. What is church supposed to be? Last week, we boiled it down into one word, family. That God has made us in a local church as a family. That we are not just a family, as dysfunctional as families can be. We are God's family. There's a unique standing we have as God's family. God has called us together from all kinds of family backgrounds to be a unique spiritual family together. And we have to function that way. There's things that families do, and you can continue to think that through. But we are the household of God. We are the extended family of God. And it's not always as it should be, but we must Chase after. We must pursue being family together. Not merely because we ought to. Not merely because that's attractive, although it is. As family breaks down in the culture around us, one of the things a church can be for the people around us is what it is that God actually has called us to be. We can be who we are, and that is a family. And, and folks are hungry for what family is supposed to be, what it ought to be, and yet what doesn't seem to be in their experience. And we can press into that. Church as family, the family of God. Okay, well, turn with me and your Bibles, I think, um, if I remember the page right, I want to say like page 992 in the Pew Bible. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, verse 14 and 15 are the, are the verses where Paul gives us this nutshell description of, the, of a local church. He's writing to Timothy, the whole book of Timothy. It's not merely a pastor's epistle. It's not merely a a, a book written to church leaders. It's written for the church to know how do we do church together? How do we be church? And that's what he says here in verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon. I hope, Timothy, to come to you soon there in Ephesus, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That if I don't come to you soon, you will know how to conduct yourselves, how to live out the Christian life together in the family of God, the household of God. That word household means family. The household of God, which is the church of the living God. The pillar and support of the truth. Now that second phrase, the church of the living God, is the phrase I want to camp on today. What does Paul mean? Because this is a nutshell description. This is a, a few words packed together. It's very compacted, and yet there's, there's a whole lot there. When we think of church, what do we think of? We think of maybe a building. Maybe we think of polity, how the church is organized or led or governed. Maybe we think of denominations. What other churches is this church associated with? We think of a church, we might think of the people within it. Hopefully we think of the people that make up the church, not the building. We might think of a steeple on a corner when we think of church. 
But none, those, those aspects, uh, as far as a, a, a steeple on a building on a corner in a town, are not the, that's not the primary image that Paul had in mind when he used the word church. The word church means something different. It means an assembly. It means a gathering. The gathering could be inside. The gathering could be outside. The gathering is not unique to the building. The gathering is a group of people who have been gathered together, who have been called together. One of the first places we find the word church used is not related to the New Testament church. It's actually related to the Old Testament, but it, it, it defines the word for us. It helps us understand it, so it's a good place to turn. And that is Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. Actually, you don't have to turn there. Just hang with me, because the phrase is like this. Peter, Peter is giving a bit of, of Israel's history. And as he describes Israel's history, he talks about the church in the wilderness, and he's talking about Israel. When he says the church in the wilderness, he's talking about those people that God called out of Egypt, and there they are in the wilderness. And when God took those people out of Egypt, it was through Moses, and God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that they may worship me. That was the purpose. They were to leave Egypt, and we're going to go out into the wilderness. Why? Why do we do that? Where, why are we going out there? So that we can be a people gathered out of Egypt together to worship God. And it wasn't just going to be a, a, a service that was held and was going to be at 10.30, should be over by 12, and uh, then, then you could get on with the rest of our day and move on with life and go back to Egypt. That actually ended up being in some people's mind, let's go back to Egypt. But God intended them to worship him as a called out assembly brought out of Egypt by living a whole new life, a whole new way. That was how they would worship him. The church in the wilderness was a church, was a group of people that were called out of Egypt through redemption, through the Passover lamb. They were called out of Egypt and gathered together as a unique and special people, a privileged people, a people that God had brought to himself, a group of people called out of the whole, called out of Egypt, out of the world. Okay, that was the church in the wilderness. Another place we find it, not referring to the New Testament church, is in also the book of Acts in chapter 19. In chapter 19, this is important for our, for our purposes here in 1 Timothy because chapter 19 also occurs in Ephesus. Here Paul is in Ephesus, and he spent a total of about three years there. And while Paul was at Ephesus, things changed. Things got radical. People came to the Lord. Those who were involved in witchcraft and sorcery, they came to faith in God through Jesus Christ, and they laid those things aside. In fact, they piled up their magic books, and they burned them. Not that I'm advocating book burning, but they'd left a false spiritual life. They left a spiritual lie behind, and they came to the true God. There were dramatic changes, and it affected things such that there were these, there were these guys that sold these little silver shrines that, that um, they honored an idol of Ephesus. I'll talk more about uh, Artemis and, and Diana in a little bit. But they sold these little silver shines, and they got all uptight because of the success of the gospel through Paul and others and how it was changing people's lives, and nobody cared about their little silver shrines that they were selling anymore. They're concerned about their own business, and they're concerned about the impact on the city. And so there's this riot that is stirred up against Paul and against the gospel that he stood for. And in the midst of that riot, there's an assembly gathered together, and the town clerk uses this word for a town assembly, this word, church, ecclesia. 
Ecclesia or church, the ek part of that word is, is the out. The church is a called out group. The, the klesia part of the word is related to a word, a, a Greek word which means to call. So the, the church is called by God. The church is called out of something else. In Ephesus, when they had an assembly, when they had a proper assembly, as the town clerk described, there were about 25,000 people that could sit in the city Colosseum. Well, the city was maybe 250,000, so maybe 10% of the public were actually part of one of these special assemblies. You see, there are lots of people lived in the city. Not everybody had the right to vote and determine what ought to be done by the city. Those were a unique and special group. They were a called-out assembly. They're the ones that had that right, they had that privilege, they had that standing. For instance, if we were to have certain votes here in the church over lots of different things, maybe we were going we, we to vote to build a new building, maybe we were going to vote to call a new pastor. I'm not suggesting either one of those, okay? Don't get excited. But if we were to have those votes, we wouldn't just say, hey, everybody wants to vote, come on in, you can vote here at Brush Prairie about this. We don't do that. We ought to, in our national elections as a, as a country as well, we ought to determine, is somebody eligible to vote before they actually vote? Because it's a unique status of those who can vote. That's that ecclesia, that's that called out of the whole, out of the whole city, there was a group who were called out from the whole. They, they had a unique standing, a special group. And that's the way, that's where this word comes from. That's, it's a called out assembly. The church is not is not part of the prevailing culture as a whole. The church is different. The church is separate. It's supposed to be different in noticeable ways. The expressed differences are going to be dependent on the culture that we're a part of, but we are supposed to be different. Now, we are not merely the church, but how do we know how we're supposed to be different? We're the church of the living God. And we're the church of the living God. That actually refers to some of the issues going on in Ephesus in the day. You see, Ephesus was a unique city. Ephesus was a city that um, honored the false goddess named Diana, Diana of Artemis, or Artemis Diana. The names change a little bit. But uh, in fact, many believed that the temple, or, or a statue rather, of, of Diana actually fell down from the gods and was given by the gods directly to the city, and they built this fantastic temple of Diana. I think I have a picture of it. It had 120-something columns. They were all about 200 feet tall. That's pretty tall. Those columns held up the roof of the temple, and it was a magnificent place, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple in Ephesus was a big deal. It was not merely a, uh, a, a, a religious place, but it was, it was a capital center. It was a, it was a financial and economic center. They, it, was a, it, it functioned like the central bank of the entire region. It, it functioned, uh, it gave mortgages for property. It collected shipping tolls because you honored the goddess with your shipping tolls. And of course, the uh, goddess was, was tended to, or her affairs and her money were looked after by people. So there was also corruption that would seep into this church, or, or, or rather this enterprise, I should say, this, this, this temple. And uh, there was corruption. The, the office of high priest of the temple of Diana was sometimes auctioned or sold to the highest bidder because that was a money-making enterprise. 
It's interesting that Paul later on in 1 Timothy is going to, going to say that there are some who think godliness or religion is a means of economic gain. Could it be that as Paul's writing these things, warning the church that is in Ephesus, could it be that some of the views of the prevailing culture easily seep into the church? But, 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 but they shouldn't. We, we guard from that because the church is called out. The church is to be separate. The church is to be distinct. Now, when Paul uses the term living God, he is drawing out a sharp contrast between God's people and the rest of the culture. Let me, let me draw that out for you a little bit. Some of the ways that this term, the living God, is used in the book of Deuteronomy, when Paul talks, in, or not Paul, when Moses in, in Deuteronomy in chapter 5, he, he describes that, that who is like this people that have actually heard the words of the living God. Talking about the conquest, that they're going to go into the land, that, that, that the book of Joshua chapter 3 says that you are the people of the living God, and he is the one who is going to drive out the Hittites and the Hivites before you and give you this possession that he has promised to you. It's because he's the living God. When Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, and the, um, the king of the Medes and the Persians is tricked into sentencing him to the lion's den. And then in the next day, the king rushes out early in the morning because he couldn't change the law. So he rushes out early in the morning to see if Daniel has somehow miraculously survived and nobody expected him to. But he's alive. And the king of the Medes and the Persians, the king of all the world at that time, declares that everybody everywhere should serve the God of Daniel because he is the living God. He is the God who is real. He is the God who is alive. He is the God who acts. He is not a God of stone or of wood. He is not a God that we have created by our own hands. God mocks idols in the Bible. He talks about a man goes out, he cuts down a tree, and he, and, he, and he chops up part of it, and he throws it in the fire, and he cooks his food over it. And the other part, he carves into an idol, and he puts it up on his shelf, and he bows himself to the ground in front of this idol, and he worships it. The same thing that he burned that side of it, he worships and bows down to this side of it. Easily, easily, the, odd, the, the, the God that we bow to is a God of our own creation, a God of our own description. Like I told the kids, we'll come up with our own list. God is like this. God must be like this. And I could never serve a God who's like that. When God calls us to know him, he's given us his book. He's given us his revelation so that he reveals himself to us through it. He calls us to know him, not to imagine God as we would like God to be. I think as we know him, as the living God, we will like, we will love the God who he is, as he is, if we are willing to get to know him, rather than the, the cheap substitutes that we would trade off God for. So God is the true and the living God. One of the other places you find this is uh, when, uh, when the Assyrian army is surrounding Jerusalem and King Hezekiah hears their taunts. And the general stands out there and he says, don't think people, he's talking to all the people of the city. He says, don't listen to King Hezekiah. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Hezekiah is going to say that you should just trust the Lord and the Lord will deliver you. Don't you believe it? How have the gods of this place and that place and that place and that place, none of those gods have been able to stand before the king of Assyria. 
uh-oh. Hezekiah takes that and he says, God, have you heard what they said? Have you heard how they have, how they have um, defamed, how they have insulted, how they have mocked, and he uses the phrase, the living God. Those gods weren't. Those gods were invented. Those gods were made. Those gods were manufactured. Those gods were defined and built. But God is the living God, the only God who is alive. So when this phrase living God comes up over and over and over in the Bible, Old Testament and New, when we find it, it's in sharp contrast between those which are not gods and the only unique singular God who is our maker and our creator. The song goes on, our Redeemer and friend. The only God. And the New Testament, the same thing comes up. After, every, after Jesus says some difficult things, people take off, and, and he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say this, some say that. Or, and um, who do you say that I am? And Peter's got the unique answer. Peter, Peter gets the gold star that day. Peter says, you are the, the Christ, the son of the living God. You're unique. You're different. There is none like you. That's what holy means. When we say God is holy, we mean unique. We mean God is different. God is other. There's none like him. In the, in the, in the book of Acts, in chapter 14, um, Paul and Barnabas are on their mission trip, and along the way, they are mistaken. In one of the towns, they are mistaken as the gods Zeus and Hermes. I'd heard of Zeus. I'd never heard of Hermes before, but they were mistaken for the two. And this town apparently had overlooked a visitation of those so-called gods before, and they weren't going to do it again. So they bring out all these offerings and all these gifts, and they're going to bestow them, and they're going to have a great worship service. And, and Paul and Barnabas are on stage, and all of a sudden the, the penny drops, and they say, well, wait a minute, what are you guys doing? They realize that this is not a, a worship service to God. This is a worship service to them. And they say, don't do that. Our message, that's not what we're here for. That's not what we've been saying. Our gospel is urging you to leave these vain, useless, empty things like Zeus and Hermes. And that's quite an insult if you're, if you're, if you're a devoted Greek priest in, in that culture. To leave these useless, empty, futile things to serve the true and the living God. See, when Paul uses the term living God, the acrid scent of idolatry is in the air. He's contrasting the true to cheap pretenders. And then um, finally in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. I'll go ahead and just flip back there. It's quite close to where we are. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, talking about true conversion, talking about conversion, coming to faith in Christ out of an unbelieving and pagan culture. You see, we often talk about unbelievers who don't believe, and we assume they don't, maybe we almost sound like that, they don't believe anything. Well, they believe something. They believe other things. Just as these Thessalonians believed other things, and then this is the testimony about them. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come, the living God who alone is the God who is alive and active and who has worked and does work on our behalf. So we are the church 
We are the called out assembly of the true and the living God. We are unique. Not only we are unique in that God has called us out, we are uniquely different because of whom God has called us to in himself. You see, we are to be different. If we wrote one word over last week's message, it's family. What is church supposed to be? Family. If there's one word we were right over this service today, what is the church supposed to be? Write the one word, different. We are supposed to be different. God has called us out of what was normal, what was all we knew. God has called us out of that to be different. God has called us to himself who is different. There is none like you. God has called us to himself because he is different. It's been said that um, the way for the church to, to attract people in this present culture is to be as much like the culture and what is popular in the culture as we can. I don't think that's true. We cannot be as good at being lost as lost people are. And why would we? We can't be as good at being in darkness as those who in darkness are because we have the light of the world. We, are, we, we walk in the light with Christ. Why would we? The way for us to be the most helpful, and perhaps you want, if you want to look at it in, in relational terms or in human people terms about what, what catches somebody's attention, the, the way that we can be most helpful and, and attract people to a hearing of what God has to say is to be different. We have been made to be different. We must be different. We decry what's going on, perhaps, in the, in the present culture. We critique it. We, we find fault with it, and, and perhaps we should. And yet, the best thing we can do is to be different from it. For instance, our culture defines marriage in its own ways. We will emulate what marriage has always been intended by God to be because God has given us marriage not merely for the good of humanity. God has given us marriage to show us something, to teach us something between Christ and the church. Marriage reaches its height when Jesus comes and he takes a bride and he says, this church is my bride. And that relationship between Christ and his church is supposed to be displayed between a relationship between a husband and a wife. And so our marriage becomes not merely a a sociological function and a need and and a necessity or even a foundational stone in the building blocks of society. Our marriage becomes a place where I will worship, where we will worship. Because there we will know something and we'll display something about Christ and his church. It's a place where we will know that. Our society is based on earned achievement. I deserve to be treated in a certain way. We're going to instead function on forgiveness and grace. It's not a matter about what somebody earns. It's not a matter of about what we deserve. It's about what we will graciously extend to one another and to others. That's the way we're going to function. Our, our society functions at the same time. It's weird. We function on what people earn and deserve and, and status earned, and we also function on a, on, a, on a sense of entitlement, especially concerning ourselves. I'm entitled to. I ought to receive. And yet the gospel also runs contrary to that because we follow one who came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life, not to receive what he was genuinely entitled to, but to give his life a ransom for many.
It's no wonder that it was said about the early Christian missionaries that they turned the world upside down. They were, in a word, different. They were church. They were a called-out, unique assembly, called true, the very different and real living God. The, um, the mood of today is toward politically correct speech. We will be willing to sensitively but courageously speak truth because there is absolute truth. There is absolute truth because there is in a single absolute God. And what he has to say matter. God is, God is not, as the society says, an irrelevant and quaint idea that we might tip our hats to. We might get a wisdom quote from when it's convenient and when it agrees with or supports our decision. But by and large, the things that God has said seem to be mostly irrelevant today. That's the view of society around us. But what, what, what if we, in a quirky and strange idea, determined to live in a way that was somewhat sideways to the culture? And when asked why, our answer was nothing more than we didn't try to give all kinds of good reasons why this is a better way to live. Instead, we just said, well, I was reading the Bible, and it said, and so that's why I'm doing this. Really? You read the Bible? You believe that and you actually order your life along, we will be different. The Bible is not irrelevant. It is everything. God reveals himself. It's not a, a list of rules. God reveals himself here. What if I devoted myself to this word because in the story, in the poetry, in the promises, and in the instructions. This is not a code of life. This is God showing himself, his character, his personality, his heart to me. I could know him there. The society around us more and more seeks to escape the present reality by escaping into experiences and distractions. I'm not sure how the Seahawks game is going. I don't want you to tell me. Not because I'm, going to, I'm DVRing it and watching it later. I don't have a DVR. But, but we, we don't need to be concerned about that now because in the big scheme of things, folks, it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. Manchester United doesn't matter either, David, just in case you're wondering. It doesn't really matter. We get, we get so excited by silly distractions, and you know I'm a fan. I, I, I get into that, and yet... And yet, be careful how we buy into the experiences and distractions. If only I could go there and do that and experience that. And wow! And then it passes, and we hunger for something else. The next place, the next holiday, the next experience, the next uh, high. If only we could. The greatest thing that could happen, if I could win the Powerball. And yet I won't. You know why? Because I didn't buy a ticket. Well, I wouldn't have won if I did buy a ticket. You know, the odds are 272 million to one. It's much more likely that one of you would buy a ticket, although I don't advise it, but one of you would buy a ticket and decide you're going to give me half. That's more likely than for me to buy a ticket and win myself. And that's not terribly likely either, is it? But... I'm not going to 
put my hope in a random lottery because I have been chosen by the true and the living God. My hope is in Him. I'm not going to hope that life would finally be wonderful if I won something that would probably eat away and destroy my soul, if not my character. We easily put our hope in the wrong things. Our society calls us to that, but we are called to God's godliness. We are called toward him because he is the living God. He is alive, he is active, and we are accountable to him. I'm not going to be instead enamored and distracted by status or by brands, I'm going to shun brands for brand's name. Abercrombie does not speak for me. $6 sunglasses bought for $160 instead are not good stewardship. But what if instead, what if instead, here or there, I make myself a little bit of margin and make myself a little bit of room? I heard a story. Just yesterday, we were down at the coast Friday night and Saturday with the Young Adults Retreat. We had to hurry back last night so that we could also be with our family here this morning. But I heard a story there. Somebody else was sharing how a friend of theirs was, who doesn't believe in the Lord but was terribly impacted because he stopped to help a woman who was having trouble with her car. And she was obviously in need, didn't, didn't, have, didn't have any money, the car wouldn't start, and somebody else also stopped. And they determined, and it was in a parking lot, and they determined that the battery was finished, the battery had just stopped, she needed, what she needed was a new battery. And so he went over to the store, got a battery, bought a battery for her, brought it back, put it in, and the other man who stopped to help and realized, well, there's nothing we can do. Oh, sorry. Why would this guy spend his own money to buy this woman a battery so that her car would start and she could be on her way? Why would he do that? Why would he spend his own money? And his answer was simply, I'm a Christian. It seemed like the good Samaritan thing to do. She had a need and God has enabled me to meet it. What if we tucked aside $20 here and there. So along the way, we had a few extra 20s tucked away some corner of our wallet that we didn't just spend because it was there. And that was just waiting to the time or the moment when we might cross the paths of somebody. And we're going to live in such a way, we're going to order our lives in such a way, not just looking, hey, who could I find today that needs 20 or 40 bucks? No, but trusting that along the way, God is probably going to put me in a place, bring me across an opportunity where I could genuinely help somebody and it would show something of his grace, his extravagant grace, which would be somewhat unexplainable to others. Why would you do that? No other reason then. That's what my God has called me to do. He's called me to be different. He's called me to care about others more than myself. We are called to be different because God is different. All those examples, I want to make one big point. We are called to be different because God is different. Something else matters more than what seemed to be so important. We have been called away from idols, called out as church, away from idols to serve the true and the living God. In 1 Timothy 3.15, the one true and living God is in contrast to any false gods. He is the possessor of the church. He is the only Savior who is active in the lives of his people. Now this contrast with idols could be taken in another direction, kind of like the cat. The cat wasn't living. 
our God is alive. I mean, you can come up with all kinds of lists of things of what it is that, in your estimation, makes it that God is alive. We brainstormed this a little bit. We have a group of men. We just started again. We took a break over the Christmas season, and besides, I was in Zimbabwe. But we're back now. And so we gathered together again. This last Monday, a handful of us were sitting in my office. We said, okay, if God is living, God is alive. What if God were a real and living person? If God were a real and living person, what would that mean? What would he be like? Well, I'm kind of playing a little bit, aren't I? Because God is a person. And he is a real person. He made all this. He is living. He's alive. Well, what then is God like in some ways that relate to our humanity that we can grasp and understand? Some of the things we came up with together, and you could grow this list certainly, but some of the things we came up with is God is responsive. God is responsive. You know, if you're sitting next to somebody, elbow them, poke them. They'll do something, Right? Now, don't start. I was, it, was, it was an example. I wasn't. Huh. But, but people are responsive. They respond when you poke them or you elbow them. Or if you ask them a question, you expect you're going to get an answer. Well, ladies, I know if your husband's watching football, it won't happen. But other than that, you expect them to be responsive and to reply. We, 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 we talk to people and they speak back. And we have conversation together. They respond. Our God is responsive. He wants to hear from us. He wants to be heard by us. And yes, he will elbow you. Yes, he will poke you. He doesn't like to be ignored. Sometimes he'll let you get away with her for a while until your game, whatever game you're playing, is over. But don't be surprised if God interrupts. Don't be surprised if he gets your attention. Our God is responsive and he's communicative. He wants to hear us. He wants to be heard by us. He, he, he acts. He sees us acts. He responds to our actions. They're, they're, God is emotional. Along with responsive, God is emotional. And this feeds into his responses to us and his interaction with us because we can bring God joy. We can grieve God's heart. The book tells us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we can. We can grieve God's Spirit. We can bring God joy. He can delight in his children. As, John ver- as, as, as the Apostle John verbalized for God, he says, I have no greater joy than this, than to know of my children walking in the truth. That's God's heart. God joys when his children are walking in the, church, in the truth and there are times when God grieves because his children are distracted. His children are chasing after futile things instead of looking to him. It was true in Israel. It's true in the church. God is emotional. We can bring him grief. We can bring him joy. Nothing, I think, makes, brings God more joy than this when I respond in faith. I do something simply because God said so. And I respond in faith, even if it doesn't make sense to me, even if I don't see any gain, any advantage in it for me, perhaps I see loss, but because God has said it, I do it. And this tells God, I trust you. I trust me with you. I accept your love for me, and I put myself into your hands. Nothing. I think, brings our God more joy than that. God is responsive. God is emotional. God is active. He is working. 
and we participate in his work. Jesus said that. My father has been working and is working until now. And he's working through Jesus. And he's working through you. Jesus said, greater, greater works will you do. When he goes to the Father and the Spirit comes, the Spirit indwells us because Christ died in our place and, and reconciled us back to God that his Spirit now lives in us, that we are the temple of the living God. And God is working even today and he's working through us. God is active. Isn't it funny how we get so excited when God answers prayer? God did something. Wow, I can't believe it. Let me pick on the guys one more time. Ladies, imagine you're talking to your friend. I can't believe it. My husband, he actually put his socks in the hamper. No, he didn't. Yes, and after that, I went out to the kitchen and all of this, the, the counter and the sink, it wasn't all full of dishes. They were actually in the dishwasher. Can you believe it? This never happens. My husband never does anything. Well, that could be true of God. We could rejoice like that when we saw God's hand move if God were a couch potato most of the time. But I've got a newsflash for you. A, God is different. We established that. And God is no couch potato. He is alive. He is the living God. So he moves. He asks. He longs to hear from us. He loves to show us his hand at work. Oh, why don't we pray more? Why don't we lean in on him more? Because he is active. He is moving. He is no couch potato. And yeah, be encouraged. Share it with somebody, but don't act like this is the first time ever God has actually heard and responded because he did it all the time. And too often we simply don't notice. There was a news release handful of prisoners, four, four people, and then, then I think there was a fifth. Five people were released by Iran after being imprisoned unjustly for several years, a different lengths for different ones of them. One of those is a pastor that we've prayed for in this church, other churches have prayed for, for, for for a few years now. We've been praying that God would preserve him, God would protect him, and God would release him. God has answered. And we're not surprised at that. We rejoice at that, but we're not surprised at that. And we will continue, we'll, we'll be emboldened then to continue to ask for the things that we, 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 we see ourselves to need because God lives. And he doesn't respond in merely mechanical ways that have been programmed to or we hope or believe he's been programmed to by our own desires like the stupid cat. God is living. He is the living God. And we cannot, folks, we cannot keep up. And yet we will pursue him because the living God desires us. He has called us out to be different with him in relationship with him. I'll close with 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? He's called us out to be different. He's called us out to separate ourselves in some ways from the society around us, not to be isolated, but because they desperately need us to be different, because they desperately need to see something of the true and the living God. And you are the temple of the living God. What if, what if this community around us didn't really understand, didn't really get why we do what we do, but they saw something of the living God in you?
That would be evangelism. We'll talk more about that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Father, thank you that you have called us to yourself. Lord, we are not stuck in the midst of life. Life doesn't just swirl around on its purposeless continuum. Father, on a conveyor belt going nowhere very fast. Father, you have called us to yourself. You have called us off of that treadmill into eternity. Help us, Lord, to see the things now in that light. To help us see what happens around us and what we experience and how we relate to others through your lens. Lord, help us to do that because we press closer to you. That you are alive. You are our God. You have not merely called us out. You have called us to yourself, the true and the living God. And we worship you. Our maker, our creator, our redeemer, our friend, you have, call, you have called us your own people, your own children. You've told us to call you Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name. We do have one who...